Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We will continue our study of the book of Proverbs today, beginning in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. If you are following along in the Pew Bible, it is found on page 1026. But we are in Proverbs chapter 28, and we will begin in verse 1. As you're turning there, uh, there's a theme that has shown up throughout the book of Proverbs. It's the theme of justice. Um, It's going to show up again today. We'll talk a little bit about it, and we've kind of touched on it little by little as we've gone through the book of Proverbs. Um, At some point uh, before we end the book of Proverbs, we are going to stop and take a few Sundays to talk specifically about justice and what it means. Justice is a catchphrase in our world today, and we have a twisted view of justice in our world, a non-biblical view, and I guess twisted and non-biblical would definitely be synonyms there. Um, And so we will stop and take a few weeks at some point in this uh, study um, to talk specifically about justice. So if you have questions about that, I will do my best to answer them as we move through. But in light of that, let us read our passage today uh, from Proverbs chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. When a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, but a man of understanding and knowledge maintains order. A ruler who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain that leaves no crops. Those who forsake the law practice, praise the wicked, but those who keep the law resist them. Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it fully. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. He who keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. He who increases his wealth by exorbitant interest amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. He who leads the upright along an evil path will fall into his own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance. A rich man may be wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has discernment sees through him. Let us pray. Great and magnificent God, we do ask today that you would reveal yourself to us through this word today. Lord, despite of who I am, point us to our Savior And show us how to live in the wisdom and holiness that you have called us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever had the sense or the feeling that someone is chasing you only to find, to look, and to see that, you know, there's no one there? That's the picture that Solomon opens today's passage with. It's the the picture of the, the wicked person who is fleeing from from whatever, maybe it's judgment, maybe it's punishment or retribution, but he's fleeing from something even though nobody is chasing him. The person who succeeds by hook or by crook will often continually look over their shoulder trying to see when the bill comes due or when the shoe drops. There's a reason for this. It's, it's linked to how we are created. We are created in the image of God. And part of what that means is that we are created with the law of God written upon our heart. We know right from wrong. We know that murder is wrong and lying is wrong and theft is wrong and adultery is wrong and jealousy and covetousness is wrong. And 
We even know that it's wrong to worship other things, things other than the one true God. And yes, there's a handful of people that every now and then can just sear and burn and and, and harden their conscience to the point where they no longer feel it. But most of us have this sense that somebody is watching when we are doing wrong. And Solomon reminds us of that as he opens this. But he, but he contrasts that with the righteous. While the wicked uh, run from, from nothing, the righteous or the wise are bold. They move beyond that fear and into that boldness. And and as we move into true righteousness or righteousness and wisdom, that righteousness and wisdom founded upon the um, fear of the Lord, we, we begin to grow within us this knowledge that God truly loves us as sons and daughters, and he loves us perfectly. Earthly fathers are such, such bare reflections of the love that God the Father has for us in that, as I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the gentle and lowly book, when we stumble, when we fall, he doesn't go, oh, there goes Ike again. I can't believe it. He reaches down. He says, Ike, I love you. Let's stand you back up and get you on your feet. I delight to set you back up even when you fail, even when you falter. That's the boldness that the wise, righteous person has, the boldness that God the Father looks upon them in love and they can move forward in peace knowing that God loves them. And yes, he disciplines them, but he does that because he loves them and he will set them up. And so we have this contrast in today's passage between the fear that the wicked have and the boldness that the righteous have. But what do the wicked have to fear? They have to fear two things. First, in verse 4, we see that they have to fear because their fellow community members will resist the wickedness that they have. He says, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law resist them. We all know those people who live life on the edge. Sometimes the literal edge. I know we, we've been a couple times to the Endless Wall Trail outside of Fayetteville, and it's right along the New River Gorge and and, and you walk along the top of the gorge and you can see people climbing from the bottom up to the top. And Lord, I love my children, but every single one of them, when we go to the Endless Wall Trail, they're doing this. As close as they can get to the edge, leaning over. And I'm like, you know, that center of gravity keeps moving forward and forward. I'm back there about 10 feet back grabbing the tree, trying to you know, see what I can see from there. But we all know those people that would kind of egg that person who's on the edge on just a little bit. Oh, go ahead. You can get a little closer. Just just one more step. Lean out a little farther to see what you can see. And we do that with wickedness. The wicked will prod other wicked people to just keep leaning over the edge until they fall. But the righteous resist that. The righteous look at that person and, and they do like a good parent does. And they say, honey, don't don't lean too far out over there. In fact, why don't you come back just a little bit? Because the edge is looking a little crumbly. The edge is looking like it might fall out from underneath you. So let's let's pull back just a little bit. Let's come away from that edge so that you don't fall into wickedness. Sometimes we resist physically. Sometimes we have to physically grab somebody to resist. But Oftentimes we do not. God has given us government and the, the power of the sword to the government to resist evil. 
So sometimes our resistance of evil is, happens through um, words, through loving our brother and sister uh, enough, both uh, physical brothers and sisters and spiritual brothers and sisters, loving them enough to walk alongside them and say, hey, I, I see these patterns in your life that I'm concerned about. We're scared to do that in our world because they think, oh, they're going to think I'm judging them. Would you let your children play in the traffic because you didn't want them to think you were judging them? We do that with wickedness as well. And instead, of, we, we encourage by our silence. But, but what Solomon says is that we should resist the wicked. And so the wicked fear because they know that they're going to be resisted by the righteous. They know that they're going to be confronted and rebuked by the righteous. But they also fear because they know that God resists them as well. Look at these words that we have. Excuse me. In which verse is it again? I didn't write it down. That's good. Keeps us going. The the verse here that that talks about the verse nine, excuse me, he says, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. You know, sometimes the wicked are right here. Sitting next to you. They have ignored God's wisdom. They have ignored God's law. But you know what? They are here on Sunday morning. They are dressed to the nines. They are singing the loudest. They are saying amen the loudest. They are doing worship just as they should be. Everything looks good on the outside. But when they walk out those doors, they pursue wickedness rather than righteousness, rather than wisdom. And so what does God think about the hour that they spend in this place? It says detestable there, but as strong a word as that is, it's not strong enough. God hates their religious practice. We learn from the Psalms, I'm thinking specifically of Psalm 51, where David says, God, you do not want my sacrifices. The acceptable sacrifices to you are hearts that are broken, spirits that are contrite before you because they understand the weight of your grace and your glory and the depth of their sin. And God warns that part of his resistance is judgment. It's the the boomerang effect that we've seen earlier in the book of Proverbs. Verse 10, he says, he who lead the upright along along an evil path will fall into their own trap. God will bring justice and judgment upon those who pursue wickedness, who pursue evil, who pursue folly. Why do you think God tells us these things? Judgment is coming for those who pursue evil. Is God being mean? No, he's being truthful. This is a warning. God doesn't tell us that judgment is coming so that we can sit here and go, hallelujah, the wicked are going to get punished. He tells us that the wicked will be punished so that maybe the wicked will hear and will repent. You look through the law, you look through the historical books, the poetic books, the prophetic books, And over and over again, God says, I will judge the sins of my people. And then he spends the rest of the book saying, repent and turn to me so that you can live. Our passage from Ezekiel earlier, it starts out saying the wicked will be judged. The righteous will live. The wicked will be judged. The righteous will live. But if the wicked turn to righteousness, what will happen to the wicked? They will live. 
Brothers and sisters, that's why God reminds us in here so often that yes, God resists the wicked and yes, they have a reason to fear, but he tells them that and he tells us that so that the wicked will have an opportunity to repent. There will come a time where they will face judgment. But until that time comes, whether with Christ's return or their death, they have opportunity to repent. They need to hear the fact that God will resist their wickedness and that they have opportunity to repent and to live. So why do the wicked fear? They fear because the righteous resist and because God resists them also. But why do God and the righteous resist? Well, it comes down to the idea of righteousness and wickedness as being more than just individual traits. Now, I will stand before God on judgment day and I will stand before him and give an account for my own personal righteousness or wickedness. Actually, I will give an account based on Christ's righteousness, but God will go through mine first to see how far lacking it is. And then he will add Christ. Then he, I will, we will be reminded that I'm covered by Christ's righteousness. But righteousness and wickedness are more than just words that describe individuals. They are community words. Look at the law the next time you have a chance. And I realize that's a big assignment there because it covers the first five books of the Bible. But most of those laws are given in the plural. They are given to communities. This is how you run your legal system. This is how you run your political system. Those were written to the nation of Israel. They They apply differently to us today, but they were still given to maintain peace and righteousness in the community. Righteousness is a description of a community who is gathered together around the pursuit of God's law. Wickedness is a word that describes a community gathered together around the abandonment or the rebellion against God's law. And justice is the bridge to get you from one to the other. And we'll talk more about that here in a few moments. And and Solomon highlights for us several ways, several contrasts between the righteous and the wicked that teach us why the righteous and why God should resist the wicked. Verses 2 and 7 show us how righteousness and wickedness play out in authority structures. When a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, but a man of understanding and knowledge maintains order. He who keeps law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. The picture here is a, is a, 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 a wicked culture will bring disgrace and chaos, while a righteous culture will bring honor and stability and security and order. If we look at the northern and southern kingdoms in first and second Kings and also in first and second Chronicles, we'll see that as both the north kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel neared the end of their history, the kings got a little bit more wicked and their reigns got a little shorter. They had this turnover in leadership that just provided this wicked chaos throughout the country. But when we had kings like Hezekiah or kings like David or kings like uh, Joash, 
They would rule for a long period of time and there would be a sense of stability and security in the country. Now, there's a distinction here that we need to be aware of, and that's between common grace, righteousness, and wisdom and, and, and specific grace, righteousness, and wisdom. Many of the lessons that we learn in the book of Proverbs, honestly, can be learned just by viewing nature. Several of us have talked about this before. Solomon watches the ant. He watches the ant. They, they get up out of the, out of the ant hill. They go to wherever the food is and they carry it back and they take it down into the food hill. And, and he looks at that and he says, oh, look at them. They're working industriously. And, and the sluggard over here is laying on his bed doing nothing. And the ants are going to be okay for the harsh winter, but the sluggard over here, he's probably going to be in trouble. He's going to be destitute. That's common grace wisdom. Much of this we can learn just by watching nature. That's how Solomon put these things together. And countries and cultures and communities can prosper under security and order and stability through the pursuit of common grace wisdom. You know, if, as long as you spend less than you make, you're going to have financial stability in a family, in a church, in a county, in a city, in a state, in a country. You can learn that on your own without the scriptures. As long as you pursue the equal application of the law, regardless of economic status, regardless of ethnic status, regardless of north or south status, as long as you pursue the equitable application of the law, there will be stability and order within a culture, within a community. And so even pagan communities can have a semblance of stability and order because they are pursuing common grace wisdom. But if we want true stability, especially within the church, we need to pursue specific grace wisdom, which is rooted and founded in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's rooted and founded in the understanding that I cannot be righteous or wise on my own, not truly righteous, not truly wise. I need the help of Jesus. I need the help of the cross. I need the help of the spirit. I need that heart change that Ezekiel talked about in Ezekiel 18. Change your hearts, change your spirits. Well, I can't do that. I need God to do that for me. And so we see an even greater level of peace and order and stability, or at least we should, within God's people, within the church, within families who say, uh, as for me and my house, we will pursue the Lord. So we see uh, stability, that the righteous and that God resists the wicked because there is a th- stability and authority and stability within the community. Verses 3 and 8 also highlight for us the reality that wickedness harms our care for the poor. Verse 3 says a ruler, if you look down at the uh, footnote in the NIV, it says a poor man. And the literal word there, it's different than the word ruler up in verse 2. The literal word there means a strong person who is destitute, a strong person who is poor. So when a strong, poor person oppresses the poor, it's like a driving rain that leaves no crops. He says, he who increases his wealth by exorbitant interest in verse eight, amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. 
The picture here is somebody who is poor and should know better than to get rich by oppressing other poor people. And one of the ways he may do it is by charging exorbitant interest. Think loan sharks or maybe the payday loan system, which has its value at times, except for when it charges rates like 25, 30, 45% interest. When you break the financial backs of the poor to get rich yourself, the righteous should stand up and resist that. It brings destruction. You know, not all rain is good for crops. We had two days of rain this week, Thursday and Friday. It rained for about three and a half hours between four and eight on Thursday afternoon. It rained for about 50 minutes to an hour between four and eight on Friday. I got far more soaked in that one hour on Friday than I did in the three and a half hours on Thursday. Why was that? We probably got more rain in that hour on Friday than we did in those three and a half hours on Thursday. If you're a farmer who has crops outside, which of those rains do you want? You want the nice gentle rain that gives you, you know, a a, a kind of a, a safe amount of rain over a longer period of time. You get the deluge, you get a day's worth of rain in an hour, your crops are gone. When the wicked oppress the poor in order to get rich, it is destructive to a society, it is destructive to a culture, and so the righteous should resist that. Verses 5 and 10 highlights the reality that the wicked will bring destruction on the community through the misuse of justice. Justice is that bridge from wickedness to righteousness. It's the equitable, fair application of the law to everybody to move from wickedness to righteousness. But the wicked, those who are already over here in the wicked column, will oftentimes hijack the justice system to move wickedness even further, to move a culture even further into wickedness. Oh, well, you know, we're going, to use the ju- the, we're going to use the justice system to oppress people because of how much money they have. You don't deserve to have that much money. Oh, we're going to oppress people with the justice system based on the color of their skin. You don't, have, you don't deserve what you have because of the color of your skin. Oh, we're going to use the justice system to oppress people based on how they vote. When you use the justice system for anything other than what it was designed for, to apply the law equitably, equitably, to move from wickedness to righteousness, you just move further into wickedness. And the righteous should stand up and resist. Because ultimately, the wicked will lead themselves to destruction. He who leads the upright along the path along an evil path, will fall into his own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance. So what do we want in a culture? We want integrity. Verse 6, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. And a rich man may be wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has discernment sees through him. Think back to what you know about Solomon. He was the wisest man in the world. Kings and queens came from foreign countries to see how wise he was, and they brought gifts. They brought lots of gifts. The books have been written, fictional books, you know, King Solomon's Minds. 
People have been searching for years for the mines where King Solomon mined his gold and his jewels. He took Israel to a place of economic prosperity that many people in the ancient Near East had never even seen. And Solomon says right here, he says, better poverty with integrity than wealth with arrogance. He's reminding Rehoboam, he says, you know, you think, we think in our Israelite culture that wealth equals success, that wealth equals wisdom. He says, but we should pursue integrity and blamelessness more than we pursue wealth and wisdom. When did we as a country become more concerned with the accumulation of stuff than we are with personal integrity? Many people today will enter into a contract with the express intent of breaking it so that they can enrich themselves. How many of you began doing business with a handshake? And now you've got to have six lawyers and seven notaries to make sure that, you know, the bill's paid on time. Why are we so tied to political power that we ignore lack of integrity in political people, politicians, that's the word, that we ignore lies, we ignore adultery, we ignore the murderously hate, hatred, word, hateful words that come out of their mouths. And what led us in the church at large to think that God cares more about who sits in the White House than he does about wisdom and justice and integrity? We as a culture, we as a church have sacrificed community integrity for power and wealth. And we're reaping the benefits, the consequences of that. Why does God resist wickedness? Because he is wisdom and righteousness. And he is designed for communities and cultures and groups to work on principles of wisdom and righteousness. Why do we resist wickedness? Because we love God more than the fleeting trappings of this world. We started with the proverb, with the opening proverb, the wicked man flees though no one pursues. Joseph Heller and Kurt Cobain have both been credited with the saying, just because you're paranoid, paranoid doesn't mean nobody's after you. The, the righteous and God should resist the wicked. I've been walking downtown lately. Many of you know I've I jogged for a while, but something's going on with my knee. I, I prefer it to heal on its own without having to see a doctor. So I've been walking downtown to kind of make up for the fact that I can't run as much as I did. And recently, as I was walking down there, I decided to take out my earphones and, and just watch and pray as I walk through downtown Lewisburg and pay attention to the people, pay attention to the businesses and, and just pray. That, that God would grip Lewisburg, honestly, and change the hearts of the people in Lewisburg and in Greenbrier County. Um, but there's a car parked there on Washington Street. It's been parked there several times, and it's got a number of bumper stickers on it. And it's got all the, the required bumper stickers to live in Lewisburg. You know, it's got an alien. It's got a coexist sticker. And it's got all those, you know, required bumper stickers that are necessary. But one of them jumped out at me. And it says, born all right the first time. I'm like, what's that saying? I'd stop and take a look at it and think about it for a while. And I think I've come to an idea of what it means. 
We have convinced ourselves in our culture that the best way to get rid of that sense of being pursued by a righteous God is to convince ourselves that we were born okay the first time and we don't need to be born again. You know, I'm basically good. I got a couple faults here and there, and yeah, maybe I tell a little white white lie every now and then, but it's just to make that person feel good. So I'm okay. If we can just convince ourselves that our sins aren't really sins and we are basically good people, well, maybe we can blunt the feeling that we are being pursued. But the reality is we are being pursued. We're being pursued by a God who offers the opportunity for life through repentance. We are being pursued by a God who cared enough about sinful human beings who are under his judgment to provide the means of salvation. Are you being pursued today? But no one is there. It may be that God is calling you to lay down your fight against him and to find the bold peace of the righteousness of Jesus. Surrender to him. Find the hope of salvation. Or maybe you're one who has embraced the redemption offered in the past, and yet you still feel pursued. Remember that God disciplines and pursues those whom he loves. Turn back to him and find peace. God delights to hear the prayers of the righteous. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you so much for these words from Solomon to us. Reminders that you pursue us. In your love for us, you chase after us in our sin and in our folly to draw us back to you. You send the spirit into our lives to convict us of our sins, to lead us to repentance. And through the cross, you have given us the means by which our hearts can be changed. Our our old sinful self could be crucified and we could be raised alive with him. So, Lord, for those whom you are pursuing right now, grab them. Stop them in their flight and turn them to you. And help us to be people that have been welcomed and who welcome those whom you are calling. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week seeking to live in the peace, the bold peace of Christ's righteousness, take this blessing upon you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And as we await his return, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.